Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Father, thank you uh, that we're able to gather and worship you this morning. And just pray that you would speak to us uh, through your word and through Hayden. Uh, you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and that you would uh, change our hearts through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Man, it's good to be with you guys today. Um, I love to be in groups of other the, the whales are singing this morning. That's what I tell our students all the time. No, no fear. That, that microphone is my backup. So if that happens again, I'm running right there. Um, it's good to be with other Christians in our city this morning. Uh, my wife wishes she could be here today, but she's actually leading worship at our church. That was a scheduling mistake. We're still kind of early on to this marriage thing, so we don't always share calendars and then stuff like this happens. So, our text for today will be 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read it, all seven verses here, then we'll pray and we'll, we'll jump right in. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The apostle writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, all the good prepositions, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, that's significant, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready. It's ready to be revealed in the last times. And in this... In all of this, you rejoice. Though now for a short time, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the local church. We thank you, God, that you have set apart a people for yourself. Thank you that you have set us apart and not just left us, that you're actively doing something in us. You have a purpose for us being here in Babylon. And God, we say as exiles today, 
you have to come and open our ears and make our dead hearts alive so we can hear this and believe this and treasure this today. This word is living. This word is alive. It's alive. It's been alive for 2,000 years, but so often it falls on rocky soil, hard soil, thorny ground. God, would you not let anything steal or choke out your word? Give us ears to hear. Show us ourselves. Show us our Savior. For the glory of Christ. Amen. So I don't, I don't know about you guys. Some of you guys will relate to this. Maybe the optimist in the room won't. That's okay. Um, but I've always been drawn to worst case scenarios. At, at its worst, this can lead to feelings of anxiety or, or even hopelessness. It's at its worst. But at its best, meaning in the hands of a God who redeems all things, I think this tendency can actually lead to a kind of joyful melancholy, uh, to, a, to a kind of what I hope is gospel-centered realism. And I think we would all admit the last 18 months has given us lots of opportunities in lots of different ways to practice gospel-centered realism. And I'm sure many of us in this room could recount multiple examples of this, and, and I, I could as well. But, but one in, in particular comes to mind. Last summer, during a few weeks, um, I lost three people that I was close to to COVID, one after another. And I know a lot of you in this room, that's, that's probably your story as well. One of those individuals was Sherry. Uh, Sherry and her husband David uh, were like grand, grandparents in the faith to me. David was the associate pastor of the church I grew up in. And in so many ways, David and Sherry were examples of faithfulness. They were examples of faithfulness in ministry. I saw them walk through really difficult things in pastoral ministry. And, and they were examples of faithfulness in marriage. I think they were married for over 50 years. And then within a week of getting COVID, Sherry was gone. But David's sorrows weren't over, over yet. His, his brother, his best friend, died right after that of COVID as well. Within two weeks, they're both gone, his wife and his best friend. And in my mind, this is, this is where the, the gospel-centered realism kicks in, because in my mind, this is the picture of an earthly worst-case scenario. And the thing that may make us feel really uneasy and may keep us up at night, if we're not distracting ourselves into numbness, is that none of us are immune from this kind of, of worst-case scenario. For those of us who live in the, the crescendoing echo of the fall, in the crescendoing echo of Adam's sin, none of us are immune from tragedy and sorrow and worst case scenarios. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples very pointedly, in this world you will have trouble. Sorrow is a reality. Tragedy knocks on all of our doors. Storms arise on all of our seas. So the question is, it has to be, not will I suffer, but the question becomes, how will I suffer? The question will not be, will I face a storm? The question is, will the vessel within which I've placed my hope, is that vessel able to withstand the storm and bring me safely to the other side? Because surely, if, if the vessel of your hope can't withstand the storm, then it isn't worthy of the sea. And so today I, I want to look at a text that has buoyed my heart 
in stormy waters. This has been a, a really tough couple years for my wife and I. This is my favorite text in the Bible that we're going to look at tonight. And I want you to know from real life experience, this text has been like a foundation, like an anchor in the storm, like a, like a well in the desert for my soul. And I, and I hope that it can be that for you as well today. So we don't have to do a lot of work in terms of context. I think it's pretty, pretty clear. This, this letter is written by the Apostle Peter to a group of suffering Christians in what's probably modern-day Turkey. What is modern-day Turkey? He's writing to them in the midst of real persecution that these Christians are experiencing, real suffering that they're experiencing. And, and there's lots of things he says in this letter, this opening statement of this letter about their identity. And I wish we had time to look at all these components, but I just, just don't have time for that today. So instead, I want to look at just one, one facet of their identity that Peter points out to these suffering Christians. He tells them in verse 1, he says, Christian, this is for Christians today. Like, if you're not a believer in this room, I'm so glad you're here. And I hope you hear in this, this description of the believer's identity an, an invitation to believe and to become a part of this covenant community. But I do want to be clear. This description of your identity is, is for the Christian. He says two things. He says, you, Christian, are an elect exile. Let's take those one at a time. First, he says that as a Christian, you are elect. What does this mean? What does it mean to elect something? What does it mean when you elect a politician? When you elect to do something? It means you, you choose to do something. So who is the one who's doing the electing here? Who is the one who has elected you? It's God. Brothers and sisters, guys, you didn't, you didn't stumble into a relationship with the Father. No, you were intentionally, actively chosen by the Father to be His child. He didn't, I, this, is, this is, my theological cards are kind of out on the table here. I'm tipping my hand here a little bit. God didn't just foresee some future faith in you. No, He created that faith. And brought you into His family, into the, His covenant community. You are elect. You are chosen by God the Father. Let that reality hit you square in your heart. You're elect. But not only are you elect, what word does elect modify? Exile. Peter says, Christian, you not only elect, you're an elect exile. Why does Peter use this, this language? Why does, he, why does he describe and, and categorize you as a Christian as an exile? But by using this language, Peter is pointing us back to Old Testament language. This is Old Testament language for the covenant community of God. This is language that's reserved in the Old Testament for, for Israel. And this is language that Peter uses throughout his letter. In chapter 2, he describes Christians in this way. He says, you, Christian, are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. That's Old Testament covenant community language for the people of God. And here in 1 Peter, he's applying that to you. Defining you in those terms. And by using this word exile, Peter is pointing us towards a specific moment in redemptive history. Specifically to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in the 580s. All we need to know for this is that at this time, after David and Solomon, the, the kingdom, the United Kingdom of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. 
And in the, in the 8th century, the Assyrians come in and totally destroy the northern kingdom, such that there's, there's no record of any living northern tribes today. But for another 150 years, the southern kingdom of Judah survives. Jerusalem and the temple are still there. And God prophesies through his prophets that if the people will not repent, destruction is coming. And then, in 586, that destruction comes. The Babylonians come and they totally destroy Jerusalem. They sack the temple. There's savagery, brutality in the city of Jerusalem. Read, read the book of Lamentations. It's, it's really, really heavy stuff. So the people of Israel, upon that destruction, a remnant of that community is carried away to exile in Babylon. And there they live, far from the promised land of God, far from the promised city of God, far from the destroyed temple, the center of Old Testament worship. They are, in every way, an exile. And Peter takes this language, and he says, that's you. In Oklahoma City, in Edmond, this is you. Christian, you are an exile. I think even in a more a realer way than the Old Testament covenant community of God, are you, Christian, are an exile? Well, this raises the question. Exile from what? Let me read you Revelation 21. This will be familiar to some of you guys. This is what John sees in Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven... And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be, them, excuse me, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some of you shed some tears this weekend and you need to hear that, Christian. He will wipe away, in the New Jerusalem, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And death shall be no more. And no more is a really fancy Greek word that means no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Exiled from where, Christian? Exiled from this. The new Jerusalem that will one day be yours in Christ. This is your identity. This is where Peter starts his letter. You are, Christian, an elect exile from the new Jerusalem that will one day be yours. A new Jerusalem in which Jesus will wipe away every tear, no death, no pain. All things will be made new. Complete, total redemption. This is your identity. This is your Identity, But after reminding the suffering Christians here of their identity, he then goes on to describe the result of this identity. Look what he says in verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. These verses, Peter goes on to lay out the result, to articulate the result of your identity. He says that God has caused you 
to be born again into a living hope. Let's take that one piece at a time. First off, this is why when it says that God elects us, so I'm saying he didn't just foresee something, he caused something. Because look at what he says in in verse 3, that God has caused you to be born again into a living hope. What's the impetus? What's God's reason for doing this, for causing you to be born again? Well, Peter tells us it's according to his great mercy. This is significant for the rest of today, guys. Because every truth that we're going to see, when we wade out into the stream of this text, every truth that's going to float around us is downstream of mercy. Every truth, every true thing that we're going to see in this passage has as its fountainhead the great mercy of God. God's great mercy has done something. In His great mercy, He has caused you to be born again. Well, this raises the question. I think it's kind of the same question Nicodemus asked in John 3, right? Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, what? We, we hear this language, he has caused you to be born again, and we should be going, what? Born again into what? Peter tells us. As Christian, you have been born again into a living hope. Why does he say living hope? He could just say hope. And that would be true. You've been born again into a hope. Yes, you have hope as a Christian. Why use this, why use this word living to describe your hope? I think it's because Peter is differentiating your hope in Christ from all the dying hopes in Babylon. Yours is a living hope. And the question becomes, what makes our hope in Christ a living hope? If you're an exile who's been born again according to the great mercy of God into a living hope, what makes that hope living? Well, Peter tells us. He goes on to say this in verse 4. He says, you've been born into a, a hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Let's take those one at a time. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable, what does that mean? Okay, well, I'm going to give you permission to do something really quickly. I want you to look around the room at other people. Lock eyes, make it awkward. Hey, look around, look around. Find at least one or two people. Okay. Every person that you just saw, and I'm not trying to bring the mood of the room down. Christians talk like this, right? Unless King Jesus comes in the clouds, and we're going to say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But unless King Jesus returns within our lifetimes, every person that you locked eyes with will have two dates on their tombstone. Again, we we live in the, the crescendoing echo of the fall, and as such, that means everything that lives dies. Your hope in heaven isn't like that. Your hope in heaven has no expiration date. The New Jerusalem will not have two dates next to its little marker in the history books. No. It's forever. It's imperishable. That's why your hope is living. It's also living because your hope is undefiled or uncorrupted, as another translation says. What does that mean? I want you to... So look around the room one more time. You can look at people, but also you can look just at the middle school. <laughs> the middle school is a great example of this. Notice the scuffs on the floor, maybe some ceiling tiles that are like looking weird because a kid threw a pencil or a binder at it, right? We live in a world that's corrupted. Everything 
buildings, institutions, our bodies physically, our spirits morally, are corrupted. Even Christians, we, we live with what we would call indwelling sin. Everything you saw, everything you see is corrupted. And this is, I think, what causes a lot of disillusionment and hopelessness. As we go, even the best of our men and women have feet of clay. Even the best institution will let you down. That's why I think conspiracy theories have gained a lot of ground sometimes. Because we do see so much corruption around us and it seems to permeate everything. And Peter wants you to know there is no hidden agenda in the New Jerusalem. There's no hidden corruption that will one day, maybe a thousand years into the New Jerusalem, will one day rear its ugly head. No, it is perfect to its core. Its very nature is uncorrupted. And as those who live in a very corrupt Babylon, we need to hear that. As those who, who have bum knees and to some extent bum souls, we need to hear that. Imperishable, undefiled. Why else is your hope living? It's, it's living because it's unfading. What does that mean? Here's the deal. I don't know Greek that well. I really don't. So this could end up being wrong. But from my understanding, the word that's translated as unfading refers to a flower that holds its blossom and its scent for an unusually long time. So my, at my old, my old house back in Newcastle, I was driving 45 minutes to Bridgeway every day. That had to stop. So my old neighborhood, the entrance was lined with these Bradford pear trees. And normally, I'm just going to say it, if you like them, that's great. I hate Bradford pears. Because like the wind gets over 10 miles an hour and you're out there with a chainsaw like, why the heck, who planted this thing? So if you like ornamental trees, that's great. God bless you. Please don't invite me over at the next ice storm. That is just so much work. So I normally hated those Bradford pears, except for one week a year. More like one day a year. I would, I would wake up in the morning, I'd drive out of my driveway, and it was like this canopy of beautiful white blossoms everywhere. It was like a dream. I was like, holy cow, this is unbelievable. And this is where the, the kind of the melancholy thing kicks in, and I go, oh, you got to enjoy it while it lasts. Because literally, by the time you get home, they're just like little yellow, wispy blossoms floating away in the air, and it actually smells really bad. Your hope in heaven isn't like that. It's unfading. I, I know what it's like. You, you look at your life, and there are moments in your life, even the best of moments, you look at it and you're tempted to go, enjoy it while it lasts. Some of you, you may be living in the best days of your life right now. I, I, I imagine you may have caught yourself. You're in the kitchen, cooking dinner, talking to your spouse, and you look out the window and your kids are playing in the yard, and you go, I just want to freeze this moment. I want to enjoy it while it lasts. And some of you, maybe you're on the other side of those days. Maybe you're in the middle of, of real difficulty right now and you're not enjoying pleasant moments. All you're left with, it seems like right now, are the memories of pleasant days that have passed you by. And man, if you could just get in a time machine for a minute, you'd do it. Your hope in heaven isn't like that. Your hope in the new Jerusalem isn't like that. Guys, you weren't made for good things to end. You weren't made for good things to end. Yeah, you will enjoy the new Jerusalem as long as it lasts. And it'll last for all of eternity. Because it's built on the foundation of a risen Jesus who walked out of a tomb. 
That we believe that Jesus is alive. That's why you have a living hope. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. Here's the question though. And my hope in heaven may be uncorrupted, but I don't know about you, but I feel very corrupted at times. My hope in heaven may be perish, imperishable and perfect, but I feel very perishable and very imperfect. How do I know I'm going to get there? Well, Peter tells us, he goes on to say this in verse 5. He says, you've been saved into an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, un- unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, is talking about you, by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. Being guarded God, by God's power through faith. Now here's something that is undeniable when you read the New Testament. If you are to be saved at the end, you must have saving faith that remains to the end. That is undeniably true from the New Testament. And you may be sitting here going, okay, how does that help me at all? Am I supposed to just like just pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps, have enough faith, make it to the end, just grit and bear it? No. Remember Hebrews 12. What does the author say? It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so closely clings to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That sounds like half faith to the end, doesn't it? Why is this possible for us? It says, Because we are looking to Jesus who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Why does the author of Hebrews want you to look at Jesus? What is it about the the nature and character of our risen Savior that makes being faithful to the end possible? Look how he describes him. He describes him as the founder and perfecter. One translation says the author and the finisher of your faith. What does that mean? It, It means... Jesus isn't like your grandma to track me. He doesn't drop you off at the finish line with a juice box and a snack and say, I'll meet you at the finish line if you can make it. So proud of you. Go get him, champ. He's not like that. He's the author. He gets you to the track. And he's the finisher. He's the one who empowers every step of the race and gets you across the finish line, even on the days when you go, I don't know if I'm going to make it. This is what... Paul means when he says in Philippians 1 that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. So we return back to 1 Peter. How do you know that this undefiled, imperishable, unfading hope is for you? Verse 5, it says you are being guarded by God's power through faith. And here's the wonder of the Christian faith. In Christianity, it is not your faith that somehow holds up and actualizes God's power. Instead, it is God's power that holds up your faith. And how does this make us want to respond? Peter knows. He knows. He says, in this you rejoice. And if you're a Christian here today, I would bet some of you, your heart's already stirred. And you're like, okay, let's just sing. End it right here. Let's sing. And that would be good and right. But we still have a question to answer. Why are trials? 
necessary. Because notice, Peter, Peter does say that. He says, verse, excuse me, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, and that can refer to 80 years, 90 years, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If necessary. Necessary for what? Here's my theory. The necessary of verse 6 is a result of the great mercy in verse 3. According to his, his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. And now in verse 6, he says, if necessary, you've experienced cancer, COVID, unfair divorce. What? Why would, why would necessary suffering be downstream of great mercy? The Bible says a hundred things, a thousand things probably about what God is doing in your suffering. But today, Peter gives us two things that God is mercifully doing in and through the suffering of the exile in Babylon. Two things. He uses an analogy to do it. He says, your faith, verse 7, is precious, more precious than gold. When I got married, I wanted to have a gold band. And when I got married, gold bands were not popular. It was still with the tungsten thing, right? The ones that you can lose your finger with if you... You know what I'm talking about? That's why I didn't get it. I was terrified of that. Even though I never used a table saw, but I was like, what if one day? <sighs> I got a gold band because my dad growing up had a gold band. And he was an incredible dad, an incredible father. And I wanted to look down in my hand and say, okay, I want to be a dad. I want to be a father and a husband like that. I guarantee you guys, when this gold was first pulled out of the ground somewhere, it didn't look anything like this. It's probably surrounded by lots of dirt, minerals, other impurities. In fact, they may not even know it was gold yet. What had to happen between now, between then and now? Well, especially in the ancient world, I had to heat up a really hot fire, threw the gold in there, and two things happened. One, all the impurities were, were burned up. All you were left with was the gold. That's how you knew you had gold, because it was there once everything else had burned up. And that's what Peter says, that our sovereign, merciful, good, loving God is doing all of his children in the fires of Babylon. He's doing two things. Number one, he's burning up impurities. Guys, nothing kills false gods faster than the fire of suffering. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. I, I know what this is like. You have all these false hopes and these false gods and you're just standing here and all of a sudden the weight of suffering hits you and you try to put your foot on that suffering and your foot goes through the floor and you go, I'm not going there anymore. burns up impurities but it does something else it shows your faith to be genuine how many guys have experienced the suffer suffering as a Christian in the middle of it so heavy and you're like I don't am I a Christian am I going to make it is this real and then you come through the other side and you're standing and you go my faith is genuine because it made it that's what God is doing exile in the fiery furnaces of Babylon. 
He's burning up impurity. And He's showing your faith to be what it really is. So precious. So precious. I want to read just a couple things that I wrote down in conclusion. A couple objections maybe that you might have. And I know these are common objections because I grew up in a context where suffering... And Christians aren't supposed to suffer. They're supposed to have a nice house, a nice car. And that's how you know. That's how you know that you're really in the inner circle of God's good graces. Nothing could be further from the truth. I know that for some of us, the idea that God is allowing and actively using our suffering might be repulsive at first. We would rather believe in a God who is helpless, in a God who wants to help but just can't, than in a God who can mercifully use and redeem suffering for your good and His glory. During this pandemic, a lot of people in my former circle, and I love them so much, but a lot of people I heard quoting Psalm 91, it says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is your refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. And it was kind of used as like a mantra, right? Whatever this means, it can't mean they won't throw you out of synagogues, or you don't have to pick up your cross, or you won't experience, 1 Peter 1, necessary trials. So what does it mean in Psalm 91? What does it mean for the Christian? What does it mean for the exile when it says no plague will come near your tent? What does it mean? You could easily say no fire will come near you. What does it mean? It means that in Christ, no non-refining fire will ever burn you. In Christ, this is Piper's words, right? It's all mercy. It means that in Christ, the plague of decisive, wrathful death has come near Christ on your behalf. And now in Christ, God is redeeming and using this suffering that was once just the consequence of your sin. He is now using it, actively using it to refine you and to show your faith that is from Him to be oh so precious. Hosea 6 This is a song we sing at our church, right? Come let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. Guys, how do we know that God's wounding in our life? How do we know that that wounding is for our healing and not our harm? It's because He harmed His Son so that our wounding could be for healing and not judgment. Finally, if suffering is necessary, know this. It is only necessary for His merciful purposes. John 15, some of you will be familiar with this. This is the words of Jesus. He says to you, Christian, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. And guys, I believe the pruning of John 15 is the burning of John 1 and even the plague of Psalm 91. For those of us who are tempted to think that our cancer, our divorce, our loved one who's sick right now in the hospital on oxygen with COVID, if we're tempted to think that's, that's either malicious or meaningless, remember this. The pruning shears are in the hands of a gardener who loves you, the vine. And who wants to give you eternal fruit. 
Know this, the refining fire is being operated by a goldsmith who wants to give you pure gold. Guys, don't be mistaken. Fire is not mercy to worthless things. It's not. Fire is not mercy to a cedar tree. But fire is mercy to gold. It shows it to be real. It purifies it. And it makes it more worthy of praise. Your suffering is in the hands of a God who used a cross to save the world. Dwell on that. In the hands of a God who used a cross to save the world. Suffering is not mercy because it's inherently good, but because it's in the hands of a God who is. Jeff, how, am I like two minutes? Okay. Let me say this really quickly. And I, I don't... I don't want to share my story. Some pastors, I understand that there's a good place for this. I don't want to always just share my story. But I'll tell you this. The last two years have been really hard. Um, last two years ago in January, we lost a baby at 20 weeks. And then last year, my wife started having these dizzy spells. And then one day she just like has a full out seizure in our living room. While I was writing this sermon, actually. <laughs> And then she has another one, and I'm so and she tears her shoulder up, and I'm terrified, and I'm so scared. I've never been more scared in my life, and I'm like, when do you get a break? Know this, guys. Know this. It's mercy from God. It's not mercy because suffering's good, but because it's in the hands of a God who is. And if that sounds glib, it's only glib if we don't believe in the reality of a new Jerusalem. Johnny Erickson Tata says this, and I've never forgotten it, right? She's a quadriplegic. She's lived that way for years and years and years and years, and she was like 16. And she says this, speaking of her own suffering. She says, there are days where, you know, you're laying on the couch, you can't move. And she says, I look forward to the day when the shutters of heaven will be open and the light pours in. And she says, if that sounds glib for someone living with quadriplegia, it's not. It's because, she says, there's a far greater weight on the other side of the scale. What you gain in Christ is better than anything you can lose in suffering, exile. And I understand, if you're not a Christian, this is all so glib. It sounds so pie in the sky. It sounds so unhelpful. But if you're Christian... If you believe the tomb is empty, the new Jerusalem is yours, then no suffering will ever be able to take away what you will gain in Christ. And we will join with the Apostle Paul when we say, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, God. Thank you, God, for making us elect exiles. Lord, we want to experience joy in Babylon. We don't want to be sullen Christians. God, give us joy. Give us the, the result of, re, of re believing and remembering what our inheritance is in Christ. Lord, above all, above all, make Christ so precious to us. So that no matter what we walk through, 
we will know with confidence that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen.